0: Greetings once again, Unfortunate Information Victim. If you've been following the Super Connected Conversations YouTube series or the podcast, then you probably know that this entire project um, began life in an album that I've written and recorded and a film uh, that I've made neither of which i am ready to release yet so in the meantime i thought i would talk to the kind of people that feel the same way i do about the way the world's changing the way we connect and how technology is either changing influencing or improving um, our our ways of connection and some of the books that have led me down this four, four five year journey naomi klein the shock doctrine um, massive influence on all the songs that I've written for Super Connected. Uh, Alone Together by Sherry Turkle. If you haven't read it, uh, definitely add that to your collection. More recently, at uh, David Boehm on Dialogue. Now, there's one book which I wish um, had existed when I started writing uh, Superconnected, and um, but I, I I know I didn't find out about it until. Uh, about six months ago. And the book is without doubt, I think one of the most important books to be published in many, many years. Uh, It's called The Costs of Connection. And uh, it is by Nick Cauldry and Ulysses Mejias. And it's about how data is colonizing human life and appropriating it for capitalism. These are the issues that I have written about and studied Uh, since 2010 when i was working at apple for a very short period and um, it's not a book about goodies and baddies it's a book about imagination and how we can use ours to create uh, a different future because the way things are going doesn't look particularly sustainable Um, i don't know how many people want to be plugged in constantly to apps and, um, and devices, but I, I just don't believe that most of us do anymore. So it's been a real privilege to talk to everyone uh, on this show, uh, but especially the authors of this book. This I think in, in, in years to come is going to be seminal in the way we reconstruct the world that we're living in. So very privileged to talk to Nick Kulji and Ulysses Mechias in this super connected conversation about the costs of connection. The coming through your Don't slide for more. Don't slide for more. Thank you so much, both of you, for agreeing to come and have this, this conversation with me um i've explained about the book the cost of connection uh, very um, minutely but with with great excitement nick you you know already uh, we've been in touch a little bit about your book and um, and what it's meant to me and how significant i think it is can i ask you um, um maybe to start nick um how this came about how how the cost of connection uh was a decision to to you know to make this into a book what 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 um and that obviously i would love to know that from both of you well i mean
1: we can we can each start um listies can't we i mean um we converge pretty quickly do you want to start i, I... You have a much
2: more uh, detailed uh, oh, yeah, uh, history. Yeah, I, so I think you should start out filling the blanks.
1: I have this elephantine memory, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I remember all the dates. But basically, Ulysses and I had met at a conference, I don't know, about 10 or 11, 2010 or 11, got on really well, didn't like the conference very much, but we got on well and um, found a real connection. Uh, Ulysses tipped me off about a great article he written, and then tipped me off when he he had a new book coming out, which was called Off the Network, which I immediately liked the title of, and I read <laughs> it and was really impressed, and then recommended it to my students, and it was their favorite book of the year at LSC, and I told Ulysses that, and I guess he found that encouraging, and then uh about a year later maybe something like that uh, 18 months got in touch out of the blue and said let's do something together and i think originally it was going to be an article or something like that and then i had an opportunity to maybe propose a book so i said well why did we make it a book we didn't quite know what it was yet but we thought we had a good instinct <laughs> and uh, um, we then um started at the beginning of 16 which was just after Shoshana Zuboff's famous article called Big Other that led to her, you know, blockbusting book had come out. So that was a little bit of an inspiration, but we'd already decided we were going to do something really critical about data and platforms. We both knew in our bones this wasn't being said at that time. Something had to be done. There had to be an intervention. And then it... um, took about two or three months we basically because we didn't know each other well we just tried not very different from when i've been in music situations actually we just tried ideas i i wrote a few paragraphs ulysses tried something just to see if there was any resonance and very quickly we found there were a lot of resonances there was something happening and then within two or three months amazingly um within a day or two we somehow got the core idea that this wasn't just about A colonial take on what was happening with data, but something much bigger, which was a genuinely new colonialism, could be starting, building on the old, of course, but something really deep, really history-changing. And once we got that, then we knew we were onto something, and nothing was going to stop us having a go and making it a book. And then fairly soon, we got a contract, and that was mid-sixteen. It took about three years to write. Does that sound fair, Ulysses?
2: Yes, no. I'm glad you provided the timeline because I'm really bad with dates. But I think, what I would add is, um, you know, reflecting on the project as a whole. I think it might be. It might sound weird for us to be writing about colonialism, and I think we fielded questions about, you know, what gives you the right, uh, not, not to put it that way. And usually the questions are not that confrontational. But why would we write about colonialism? And I think that speaks to the great collaboration that this project represents. I think, you know, well, I don't know if Nick, you identify as a historian, but I don't. And so I think the first question is why would we write about this history when we're not uh, trained historians? And I think for us, what's really important is just the ability to trace the continuities, Um, you know, the resonances, what happened in that historical period that resonates today. And so, yes. Uh, Nick writing from his particular context uh, in the UK. Um, I'm writing from my, also my own context as uh, someone born in Mexico, but who migrated to the US and now works there. So I think uh, for us, it felt like a good fit and a critical space to just write about these things. Mm-hmm. Even though you know we don't do colonialism academically, uh, and even though we might not be the kind of uh, um, subjects that would be writing about these things, but uh, we found it a very fruitful framework to just talk about what we wanted to say. What I really
0: love about your work with, with this, and I don't know your work before The Costs of Connection, but it's, it's, it's true, it's conscientious, it's about, Uh, the value of communities. It's about um, freedom. Uh, It's even about freedom of speech, actually, and not being constrained by all the restrictions that that, uh, well, big tech put on us as a kind of condition of us being able to participate in those platforms and the way they help us Or force us to connect, depending on your your point of view. Um, It it, it often struck me when I was in my late teens, in the 90s, um, there was a kind of revision of the 60s counterculture. You know, the Doors movie came out, these great inspiring figures like Jim Morrison um, and Jimi Hendrix um going back even further billy holiday for me as a musician these these characters that throughout history had stood up against um any any kind of establishment removal of rights and and uh, and freedoms and in the 90s it felt very much like where, where are they now you know where are they now and 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 fast forward to i i guess um the last five, ten years, it's like this not to be found actually in popular culture. So I, I, I and I think many of my generation probably look to writers to be, it, it used to be pop stars, rock stars and actors would be citing writers and their work um, in order to cause some kind of uh, either civil unrest or, or, uh, social activism, you know, and, and, but now it just seems, David Graber is another writer that I love you probably, probably both. Know. And, and it seems that, that it is, it's just, the rock stars are the writers. Now, did you, did you get a, a sense of this being what I feel is potentially the first of its kind and in terms of calling out and naming uh, what's happening with big tech and data um, to, to the whole world, really, Now, um, in, 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 I mean, uh, there are other books I know uh, around that touch on this, but there isn't been so I had not heard of the term data colonialism until this book, obviously. Or the Cloud Empire, which I think is fantastic. I mean, as a as a as a songwriter, it just seems every chapter had great names for potential songs and characters. <laughs> it's it's such a kind of there's a new language that's come out of your book, uh, term terminologies, and which I I felt uh, utterly um, embedded in the meanings of those terms, but hadn't seen them. Given a sort of title until I read the book, um, it feels like if if enough if people read the book, um, it could make you both into a sort of you know uh, I don't know um, uh, similar to some of the figures in the in the late sixties counterculture period uh, like Bobby Seal and people like that who are absolutely m- m- causing trouble with with powerful organizations and you call them out by name in this um would you, would you call yourselves rebels
2: with or without a cost i think <laughs> that's the question yes i don't know I, no, i'm not say, sure i'm ready to be a rock star <laughs> what do you did think
0: you, did you say that again ulysses what did you well say rebels
2: again? with or without a cost mm-hmm. i was wondering you know what kind of rebels but And I was also saying that I'm not exactly sure I'm ready to be a rock star, but I don't know, Nick, how about you? Well, I was a musician, but
1: certainly not a rock star. And uh, I've got no longer any aspirations for that. But I think what you're tapping into, uh, Tim, is that writing the book did feel a bit lonely at some time, because when we started it, it looks really different looking back now. Zuboff had just done one article it had been really successful it's true but you know it was a standout there was nothing else like it remotely like that at that time and it we were looking for comfort we were happy to get comfort from her vision that something was deeply wrong with platforms with google in particular and facebook uh, and it gave us a lot of support actually but apart from that we were looking to philosophers and we we're looking all over the map there wasn't much around there was some but not much the irony is But as we went on um, and as we got close to finishing it, it became clear that more and more people were coming out with critical books. I mean, many of them are ones that, you know, you read if you're specialists like we are reading all the stuff that comes out. Um, But then, of course, we knew that Zuboff was going to have a what was almost certainly going to be a big book. uh, And she was just a little bit ahead of us. And I met her, actually. And, um, you know, we found a lot of common ground, but also we knew we had something different. Um, and her book came out a few months afterwards so i think for a lot of people her idea of surveillance capitalism really has sort of taken over the landscape it's said enough the financial times loves that because it implies you know capitalism's okay but just some bad guys out there we just need to get them under control get everything back on track capitalism can go on with the job But what we're saying is that something's rotten in the whole state of capitalism. It's the whole thing that's rotten now. That's what we've got to challenge. And some people don't see the difference between what we're saying and Zuboff. But actually, you think at the end point we're going to, it's fundamentally different. It's challenging the whole thing, not just a few bad apples. So we knew that from earlier. And I think it's fair to say, Ulysses, we felt a little bit lonely writing this because it wasn't obvious who was going to back it. But we decided we just had to do this. Uh, uh, and yeah, we just just went on. And we found inspiration, for example, from um, philosophers, First Nation writers, from Canada, and uh, Ulysses was particularly good at finding sources like that literary sources. You know, I mean, we were looking for inspiration all over the map. Um, so I have no idea what how many people in the end will read it but it certainly felt a bit lonely at the time we felt like pioneers even it turns out we weren't quite as original as you thought because a lot of people have been thinking this for the past 10 years there's actually been a wave building we're just part of a much bigger wave that's just coming into view now
0: it's interesting you say you felt lonely writing it um if if i may i just sort of to, want to reflect that, as you already know, Nick and, and Ulysses, um, I, I'll i send it to you, but the the songs that I've been writing mostly for the last four or five years um, about these subjects, about big tech and about, you know, the hierarchy, these huge companies up here and these families down here just plugged into their Amazon Prime and whatever it is. And ha- how that impacts is is affecting us as human beings. I felt lonely and also potentially completely mistaken and and ready to, for ridicule. And 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 I haven't released any of it yet, really, apart from one song. So I'm <laughs> yet to find out. But certainly, I've had a continued sense of uh, people around me just friends and uh, and sometimes colleagues kind of looking at my preoccupation with tech and if it's evil or if it's broken or corrupt as a kind of verging on a sort of paranoid weird conspiracy theorist that she's like look you you just need to get a handle on this tim this is life now we've all got amazon accounts we've all we all use iphones we all have to use facebook just just deal with it man get on with it you know and of course i i don't have children so i haven't got that extra push which is i you know i have time lucky i have time to sit back and go is this right? <laughs> you know, many of my friends don't have that luxury because they've just got to respond a lot to family needs and those pressures. Um, but I, re- I really hear that sense of feeling lonely. And I just, I just wondered, uh, perhaps not in the UK, but in 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 America, it's it traditionally, historically, it's been a really dangerous thing to be pointing the finger at large companies Ulysses I I wonder how you felt about that in writing you know and all the all the big names are in there Google and Apple and Amazon and uh, and and by the end of the book it's very it's pretty clear and you're fair and and it doesn't feel like you're blaming people but you are absolutely making them accountable in the same way You know, Carol Cavallada made Cambridge Analytica accountable in the same way um, that, um, you know, countless smaller beings (laughs) uh, have been looking at large companies. What's that like in in being in North America?
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting for sure, because it does feel uh, a little bit like uh, the belly of the beast although uh, we're talking about things that by now are obviously global. And so in terms of the impact, uh, we would argue that it's uh, uh, felt across the world, but uh, it's true that um, it did feel a little bit lonely. And this kind of critique actually, when I published my first book, one of the comments I got was that this is not the kind of stuff that's read here in the United States, maybe in Europe, uh, which maybe was a a good, motivation for reaching out to Nick to see if he wanted to write something together. But I think uh, some things have changed. And I think specifically, you already mentioned Cambridge Analytica. I think that was crucial in terms of changing how the public feels about these things. The Edward Snowden revelations, uh, for sure. Also, I think that's when people started to wonder, okay, what's going on behind the scenes? Mm. And I think culturally, and to go back to your point about music, uh, I, and this is a little bit of a joke because I do tell my, my students the third thing that changed things was the series Black Mirror uh, because I think culturally, it sort of gave us a language to start. It's okay to critique some of these things. Look, some of this is not, uh, doesn't make sense. It, it are things we should uh, question. So I think that cultural aspect that you were talking about when you mentioned subversive music, it's true. Uh, I'm not very familiar with the music scene today. Uh, Maybe we're lacking subversive uh, rock stars, Um, but I think uh, films such as yours, which I have had the um, honor and privilege to watch, I think it very much feels like a space where uh, film uh, uh, makers are producing this kind of critique. There's excellent documentaries around. And journalists also that are uh, publishing lots of interesting stuff. So the mood has shifted. I think it's become more acceptable to be critical about these things. And I very much see your film as part of this conversation uh, um, about these issues.
0: Thank you. I mean, I, I, I said to Nick the other day, it was it's such a weird thing. To have read the book after you read your book after making the super connected film because <laughs> it just it, you you encapsulated the things that hadn't been encapsulated that I was grasping for in the songs and, and, and the story in the film. Um I, I I want to ask you, Nick, about the the nature of the cost of connection and how it the, the root of it and all. <laughs> subjects associated with it are to do with uh, solving problems. There are problems in society and we come up with solutions and and, and a huge solution uh, in, in certainly the 21st century has been technology. It solves a lot of problems authentically and and then it poses to be solving other problems. And what's so interesting is that your book is trying to solve the problem of 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 a sol- of a so-called solution for for the problem of how we manage life um and i just i wondered how how it feels at the moment just to you personally i'd like both of you to respond to this in just your daily life with your family and your where does it affect you um the the subscriptions the the invasiveness the surveillance any of it
1: well maybe i could just step Go one step back first because i think if you sure. start from daily life the problem is you get the sort of reactions you're getting from your friends you say come on we need to organize something fast don't mess around it use facebook you know just get on with it if you're in yoga everyone uses facebook there's no other way to do it if you're gonna be a brilliant yoga teacher so daily life is a bit of a problem because it's been colonized basically by by tech so Um, Actually, another person who was before us was a Russian writer called Morozov, Yevgeny Morozov, who has the brilliant idea of solutionism. Everyone wants solutions, but he comes up with this idea that corporations in recent years have branded themselves as the people who have the solutions to the problems of everyday life. They just occupy that place of the people who solve things. Mm -hmm. and We're predisposed to believe them, just like when coronavirus started spreading you see oh well there's an app for that let's start tracking it proved to be completely harebrained doesn't work and so on but you know apple and google had the solution and a lot of governments around the world seemed to believe them for a while and that links to something that this is it seems to be about offering us convenience and nice things but actually it's more about um power it's about the idea of governing our lives in a radically different way. If you offer a total solution, pardon that awful phrase, but we are talking of something that broad, a total solution for the organization of daily life, mm-hmm. depending on a certain take, from which certain people happen to profit rather a lot, and you are persuasive enough to get that into people's heads, it's pretty difficult to unpack that once you've done that. So it's about social order. So if you start with the daily habits, you can't get back to the problem, which is this idea of an order that's Mm -hmm. being imposed on us through these little solutions, these moments of convenience and so on. You've got to step back and see the whole thing. And there is this bigger vision of fixing our lives, literally rebuilding life for us so that profit can be generated out of it the whole time. And it's the core. That's really new. That's a new, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't even imaginable by corporations. They didn't know how to do it. it
0: do. It's interesting you're saying um, the total solution. There's a, there's a track I wrote on the album, the film that you've seen called The Complete Solution.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's which, is spe-
0: <laughs> which was specifically actually part of Apple's core training, <laughs> as it's called, core training you do at Apple. When I worked at Apple and... Um, and the complete solution was the was the uh, so you could sell a product in store um, or you could you could pitch for the complete solution. And I remember when I started there, I. I thought this sounds great. What is it? What is it? All it was was that you can buy a laptop, or you can buy a laptop with one on one learning on added on, and you know a two year protection plan, and that was the complete solution. You know, so and 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 throw in some accessories as well. It's this whole thing of getting sort of making sure if somebody comes in and to, to spend a pound that they end up spending three pounds. You know, uh, and and it, and it's it's such a trite um uh sort of re- reason for interfering <laughs> with life it's just like there are actually things that that really require solutions but actually you know whether or not i've got a green or a yellow cover for my ipad is not one of them um <laughs> ulysses um how, how what about you in terms of the impact that you feel day to day um and yeah, ordinary life.
2: Right, well, yes, because I think as you and as Nick are suggesting, um, these solutions are um, just so much part of our lives now that it's hard to imagine living without them. And it's hard to imagine going back. No one wants to go back to an era before mobile phones when it was so easy to uh, you know, just arrange meetings uh, on the go. So uh, I think that's the one part that we need to be careful about and honest about our own role in participating and deriving enjoyment and satisfaction from this system. Because uh, especially when we talk about this new order of colonialism, I think it's just easy to assume that we are simple victims, passive victims that our role is just to consume Mm. and to apply and uh, we're completely powerless to resist, uh, which may or may not be true depending to what degree we want to uh, uh, analyze it. But I think the issue is that we derive so much satisfaction from using these tools that sometimes, yeah, it's impossible to think about just giving them up because we are active participants in this new order. We are active contributors to this order. Uh, We get customization. We get uh, enlarged social circles. We get so much out of it that it's uh, difficult to see where the problem might be. And I think that's the biggest challenge frankly to this kind of uh, uh, analysis that it's really difficult and becoming increasingly more difficult mm-hmm. to step back and to see just how this emerging order is uh, colonizing, mm-hmm. occupying so many aspects of our lives.
0: Tools is a really interesting word, isn't it? Because it, it, it's it's a, a hammer is the classic tool which you can build a house with or, you know, you can kill somebody with. It, it, it's both extremes. A tool is classically, traditionally, it's it's um, it can be used... Uh, or abused and it 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 feels that the way you talk about um big tech and and social media platforms in that way that you know it's not you you, which what i love mostly is that you've presented it in a way that it isn't either or it's not like we've got to get rid of technology uh but actually uh start to um, be a bit more self-aware of how we use it in our lives and, and how much we are really getting from it. Um, but the the, the the bit that of the book that really um, keeps kind of winding me up uh, in a good way is the word colonialism. It just, it just makes you think of slavery when you hear that word, right? Uh, the colonies. It just takes you. It's it, 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 and and I think it's genius that you've made that connection. Uh, that it that what what we're all participating in is um, the ultimate kind of slavery, um, which is all of us. Uh, which sounds dramatic to some people, but I, I don't know how dramatic it is because it is through social media platforms uh, that we've ended up with TV talk shows you know, show host running America and things like that Do you know what I mean, those are all, are all partially responsible uh, for some of the you know Brexit in the UK or all these kind of issues that I think 20 years ago you get that will never happen you could that would never happen. And it's a, it's it's an insanity that's made possible a lot by algorithms and the control of data, we know that and it's, you know, Um, people aren't voted in, they're bought in or or, or they're persuaded in with very, very clever uh, posts on Facebook and other such um, platforms. Do you see what your I think your desires for a world that is more conscious of what's happening and more in control of, of what's happening, something that can happen in our lifetimes or do you think this is like at the beginning of a long haul because they're they're giants aren't they these corporates, and they've got their tentacles very much into every part. whether it's the pharmaceutical industry government the military complex it's it's completely um sewn up in a way that when you just need to get your kid to school on time and then get to a meeting you haven't got time to sort of say okay, we're gonna shut down all the computers in the house and I'm that's it, I'm leaving Facebook, you know, which is the immediate reaction. How do you feel, maybe it's an unfair question, but I still wanna know the answer, as just individuals, those of us who haven't done what you've done and really studied the, the raw material of what's happening, how, as individuals, can we, in our own little way, contribute to sort of revealing what's happening to the point where we don't accept it anymore.
1: Well, the funny thing is, you say no one could have predicted it, but something we discovered after we finished the book, having, as I said, been a bit of a lonely process writing it, but Norbert Wiener, who was one of the great mathematicians behind computing in the first place, the very idea of computing, wrote the book Cybernetics in 1948. In the preface which turns out he wrote in Mexico City, we've no idea why. He said, and he was writing three years after the atomic bomb was exploded. I've been thinking for a while, even before the atomic bomb, that there are two dangers we face today. One is the atomic bomb and the other is connected computers. This, that, that can organize the world, that they are just a, pre- they are a force for good, great good or great evil. 1948, almost in completely ignored, wow. unbelievable, he saw that because he understood you can govern the society through computers, you just connect them up, it's that simple. And you connect them up in a certain way. And that's the core of what we're saying. This is the cost of connections have been there right since they started connecting. If you had the vision of Vena, but no one listened. No one listened at all. So in that sense, um, we don't think anyone should feel guilty about saying no. But we can't do it individually. We have to do it collectively together. Because this really is a social order, an economic order being built. That we're all linked into. We're all plugged into you can't just unplug yourself because it's going to go on anyway without you
0: because
1: it's an order so we have to help each other build what it means to unplug ourselves and ulysses started that with his previous book he was already theorizing that's what brought us together in the first place with off the network um so that's the way it's a collective thing that we have to do that's
0: great to hear ulysses i'm sorry i haven't read your first book but obviously i'm going to um, off the network is that in a similar uh, is that a similar expression to off the grid that we hear a lot?
2: Yes, uh, for sure. And that title was actually chosen by the editor because you know they thought this would be uh, uh, more attractive to the public. But uh, yes, You've I think to have uh, a snappy title, the gotta have a snappy title always, as you know very well. But I think um, just in one minute, if I can just talk about the difference between the two books or the uh, alignment. I think in of the Network, which is the earlier book, I was still thinking about what it means about the possibilities to opt out, to um, be outside of the network, what it would mean, where are those spaces? Uh, Whereas in the second book, I think, uh, um, not to sound too pessimistic, but uh, I started to recognize a world where uh, it was becoming, not very much possible to step outside of the network. So the possibilities to opt out of the system were becoming uh, fewer and fewer. So I think that's kind of uh, uh, what we were trying to do with the second book. But Tim, I think it's very important also to go back to uh, an earlier point you made um, about slavery and such, because I think when we start to talk about colonialism, I think, yes, it evokes so much in our Um, historical memories and in what we learned in school. And so people think we're using it metaphorically. People think we say, okay, what happened for 500 years, now we're saying that what's happening today is like colonialism. And actually in the book, we make the case that it is not, we're not using the term metaphorically. Uh, We are acknowledging that there are very important differences in terms of the context, the scales, And we must not forget those differences, but there's also one very important similarity between the old historical colonialism and the new colonialism, what we call data colonialism. And that is that the function is the same. The function to extract, to dispossess, that we can trace, you know, the continuities historically, but we want to be very careful not to say the slavery is the same, the um, violence is the same, Uh, After all, when we talk about the old colonialism, that's something that resulted in uh, 95% of the population of the American continent being decimated through a process of uh, um, uh, a couple of centuries, and not just through violence, but also through disease. But we don't wanna say, when I use Google or Facebook now, it's the same thing. It's gonna result in the same kinds of slavery. It's gonna result in the same kind of violence. Hopefully 95% of the population is not going to be eradicated just because we use Facebook. So we do want to be careful about those those differences. I don't know if Nick, you wanna add something to that.
1: Yeah, I, I think what Ulysses just said brings out what it opens up. If you use the parallel not a metaphor, the parallel with that first stage of colonialism with what's opening up as a historical period now in a precise way. It's about the land grab, it's about grabbing resources. So we know that historical colonialism transformed world history because suddenly European powers think, wow, the whole world's there for us. We can just take it. Mm -hmm. We found this new continent. We didn't even know it existed and we can just take everything. And they proceeded to do that over 100, 200 years And if they hadn't, we wouldn't have had capitalism. We wouldn't have had the fuel for capitalism, something. Theorists of capitalism often forget that you can't have capitalism without colonialism. (laughs) Um, So we're saying that something equally um, world changing is happening now, but the territory is a different one. And it's us. It's human beings. Um, And people say, well, isn't that just a continuation of old exploitation of human beings? But I think that's a very uh, uh, flat view of history. It, it, it was a massive corporate discovery to say that human beings can just be plugged in. Actually, they don't even put, they didn't even know they're plugged in. They just are plugged in. They don't even choose it. They're, yes. they're no longer an outside at all to capitalism anymore. That's a big change. Yes. A really, really big change. And in fact, it's hard to know where capitalism can go next, except, of course, plugging in the whole environment. And then you get to ag tech, which (laughs) is also datafying the farm. But of course, the farmers as well at the same time. So it's pretty much part of data colonialism. But, you know, long run, you won't be able to put a a flower in the ground. Yeah, without checking the data read off on some Hewlett Packard thing that doesn't work because
0: it hasn't had a download yet. That's where we're going. The, I love what you're both saying, and uh, you just said something, Nick, that I want to pick up on. You said uh, uh, that there's an, um someone they're not aware. A lot of us are not aware, uh, which of course your 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 book really uh, does a great job in revealing. Um, but in being in being aware, I, I I've noticed that those uh, in the higher echelons of society who uphold capitalism as an ideal and um i've that i've sometimes had to be uh in you know, i've campaigned for specific land grabs um in in soho in london i did a lot of campaigning for that area and it, it strikes me that the the concept of there being an arch enemy a baddie figure isn't that's not really real and that quite a lot of the 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 individuals in positions of privilege and a lot of money um are themselves not aware of what it is that the impact is to so many of us who are not in those privileged positions so there's an unawareness across the board when i look at it with those of us who are just updating our contracts with our iphones and subscribing to things and staying locked into a Facebook way of communicating with people. And then those that are keeping those companies fueled um, They're not bad people. The same as the the kind of landlords and landowners I met when I was campaigning to save Soho. They're not bad people. They're completely unaware of what it is that their lifestyle is doing to many other people. I mean that's that that's when when you add big tech to that that's kind it's it's that traditional problem um, on steroids, isn't
2: it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think uh, you know when you say that there's this unawareness, I think what I would also point out is that the unawareness is very much intentional or by design. And that's what it means to be going through a process where we're having a new social order emerge, where certain habits, uh, attitudes, ideas uh, get ingrained into our heads uh, without our awareness. And so we just install the new app or get the new phone or um, click the little box that says I accept without giving it a second thought. And uh, actually a big example we use in the book is to do this transhistorical comparison of what it means to check that little box. And we found this uh, very old document that Spanish conquistors used to read before entering a village. And the document's called the requerimiento. In Spanish, it means the requirement or the demand. And I know your Spanish is good enough, uh, Tim, To maybe appreciate that, but this is something that the conquistadors would read. And they would say, basically, we're gonna enter your village and take everything you own. And we're gonna make you slaves. And if you resist, we're gonna kill you. And from now on your property is ours. And they thought that by reading this legal document, uh, which the kicker is that they would read it in Spanish to an audience that didn't understand it, that didn't speak Spanish. And they thought the act of reading this was enough to legitimize what they were going to uh, about to do. And so now we click that little box in the same way without thinking about it. Yeah, it's the EULA, right? Yes, yes, the terms of use, the the end user agreements, uh, which nobody understands, right? For all practical purposes, they might be in a language. Who's Who's got time? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we don't understand it. So this unawareness that you're talking about is very much part of how the system is meant to work.
0: And is it our fault that
1: we, do- sorry, Nick, you were going to say something? Well, I just, I think you raised a really interesting point about awareness here, because you listeners and I are absolutely not preachers who are saying, look, we've got this special knowledge. You're all, you're, you're all missing what's going on. Here's our wonderful wisdom. We're saying we're struggling with this too. We're part of this system but we're puzzling and we puzzled enough to write a book about it just as you've written songs about it and then here's the result of that puzzlement it's not a there's not a conspiracy there are bad people it's something much deeper more interesting and more dangerous than that mm. which is the whole world becoming geared to a bad outcome the same of course true with climate change some real bad is in there but it's everything all of us have been doing for a hundred years that has come together to this disastrous potentially in uh, outcome so we've got to think we think about that just to give you another example of how hard it is to be aware of this um another thing we say in the book is that we're at a new moment of history with tools you used the word tools earlier on we think tools are things we hold in our hand right and we hit the nail on the head with a hammer that's using the tool The nails not going to come back and jump up jump at us because we hold the tools right but the tool, and nor is the hammer going to hit us in the head unless we just do something silly it's basically the tools we use today are coming for us they're grabbing our data in fact mm-hmm. unless we let them grab our data they're not going to work for us this is a really big change in human history when tools are reversible Mm. they come back and bite you before you've even you picked them up but this is such a big change we don't have a language for it Mm. you can't put it into words it's such a big refixing of things not surprisingly we're all floundering to say that can't be going on that's impossible couldn't possibly be they never do that that is what they're doing
0: Yes, what you what you're saying it reminds me a bit of um, I, I probably get the quote wrong, but it's Edward Snowden who said you know that uh, it's saying that you you're not really bothered about surveillance because you don't do anything wrong yeah. in your life. is a bit like um, not not supporting anybody else that who, who doesn't have freedom of speech. Really, it's like it's 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 it it's it, 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 it's not enough, is it? I, I had friends probably. 10, 15 years ago when i started saying you should be using this because the security is better it's like i don't do anything wrong man well i i don't mind using whatsapp and i don't mind and it's like it's not about that it's the collective thing isn't it it seems like such um an ambitious task it's not going to be easily stated to be able to 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 take our conveniences away and is there not whilst we want progress and we want evolution we want technology to help us um be better to ourselves and better to the planet um these elements of convenience seem to be the the things that are holding us back from really connecting and that and there's so it's not like we, we want to live in mud huts again and everyone's dying before they're 40. <laughs> but, but we but we we there's got to be some kind of um i don't know what i'm trying to say like a um a, a way to say no it's okay that i it, it, i can't immediately get this so it's okay that i can wait three days so i can wait a week it's okay because actually the energy is no good for the environment and you know this constant the amazon thing is that i find i've only just started feeling really strange about it and i don't want to get anything on it anymore because it's great you just i'll get it because it'll be there tomorrow and this it's part of myself i'm trying trying very slowly to be a bit more of aware of the conveniences i have that actually i could i could probably live without (laughs) and be perfectly happy but it's it's one person at a time isn't it i mean um and just because you know we we haven't got I, i could talk to you for Absolutely, days, I, and, and and listen um, to what's brought you to this sort of uh, epochal moment. I find it very revolutionary what you've both written. Um, but going back to what you said, it's about changing things for the better. It's about collective. It's about community. Um, if it were the sixties, we'd go right. We're having a meeting down the pub board in the in the village hall. <laughs> At six o'clock on Friday, if you're not happy about that thing that's happening, uh, then you should be there. And and now it's almost like I say the wrong word in a Facebook post and no one sees it. Right. Because Facebook's like, no, nah, we, we're not showing we're not pushing that through. I have countless games that I play to make some of my friends and fans be able to see stuff. But it's I'd say 25 uh, percent of the things that I share on social media never reach the people that I want to reach uh, because they've got the wrong word or the wrong link or it's going to take them outside the platform. What's the the first thing that we can do to create the collective that can start to help each other and others become more aware of what's happening really to our lives?
1: Well, first of all, is imagination. That's the first thing is we've got to do what we're just doing now which is talk about what if this goes on well it's not very sustainable the nonsense about blockchain will take all the electricity in the planet before they're finished it's obviously not sustainable that's an obvious truth we have to talk about then imagining a different future without blockchain it's not hard to imagine at all because most people haven't had it thrust upon them yet but they will do so then we have to step back with the things we have got used to and imagine well, what would it be to be without Facebook? What would it be for me to stop using Twitter so much and, and so on and so forth? But as you said, you can't make that choice alone. You just can't do it alone because um, we're all in the social order, we're all pulling on each other. So if I suddenly snap the elastic and fall off, It kicks back on someone else. It has impact. I I can't just do that. We have to dismantle it together. Mm. And that's going to take a lot of time, but it comes back to the rethinking the costs of connection. We want to connect. The book is absolutely not against connection. Connection is the basis of human life. So we've got to Mm. connect on on terms that don't have such high costs. Um, And that means, um, that we have to start thinking again about why do we have to connect so fast? Do we really need a platform with 2 billion users, more 2.4 billion, I think at the latest count, to connect with the people down the road?
0: Yeah. I it's have to thing, ask, I have
1: to ask- As soon as you put it in those terms. And yet we take that assumption because Facebook had offered to it offered it to us, let's build out alternative platforms, which are just as good for what we really need most
0: of the time. Yeah. Um, i have to ask you both uh, for instance, it's a thought I had quite recently since doing these um conversations. I, why it, why would most of us choose facebook to connect with people over zoom like this? because to me this is, We're talking to each other, we're listening to each other, sharing ideas. There's no adverts. There's no sense of broadcast. My bass guitar fell over, which I I put up nicely in the background. It's like it's fine. You know, um, I've not shaved properly. I'm not bothered. We're just having a chat, right? Um, And then there's that side of it on Facebook where I just, you know, everything we do, we compose, we filter, we present, we broadcast. And there's an element of that finding finding a collective. I don't see how it, it can happen in those spaces because we're all broadcasting and filtering versions of ourselves. This isn't. We're just in each our own environments talking to each other. I I, I quite I hated Zoom when it started, but it's the only one that I really feel like comfortable with now, and I can I can just I feel quite human. I, you know. Obviously, it's not yeah. as good as being in a real room but um, what is it what is it that I know I've got a lot of friends that we just would never in a million years consider okay yeah we'll join you Tim and well, let's all let's all get off of that platform and stop broadcasting and let's really spend time connecting
2: yeah well it's interesting because even when you're talking about video conferencing Tim you use the word zoom to refer to it which is the name of the corporation. And I think, you know, there are alternatives uh, to do what we're doing right now outside of Zoom. But that's part of the problem that we're discussing, right? That these platforms are created. And for instance, in my case, my school said, use Zoom, here's your account. uh, This is where you're gonna have classes. So just like they told me um, 10 years ago, guess what? We're getting rid of email that we host here in the school. Now we're using Gmail, because it's free. And so a lot of these options are kind of forced on us. And frankly, I also hated Zoom. Uh, I rather just even could communicate with my family for the longest time. Email was just fine, thank you. It was already a privilege to be able to send something and have it read you know, instantaneously as opposed to having to wait uh, weeks for the mail to actually get to Mexico. Um, but my point is that there's also this network effect that we call it we can come up with an alternative to Facebook tomorrow. In fact, they're already out there, they exist. But uh, my family is not on that platform. My friends are not on that platform. They are on Facebook and they have been there for many, many years. So that's what we're gonna use. Um, I think the last thing I wanna say though, is that it's okay for different solutions to um, be part of the options that we have available to us. I think we're not here to say abandon Facebook, use this other platform, Um, use this other platform instead of Zoom. I think the solutions to these problems, uh, whatever forms of community we're going to reimagine, we need to be open to the possibility that different things are going to work for different people. I know for some activists, Facebook is crucial. They need to be on Facebook, that's where they're going to reach an audience, so it's uh, silly to tell them not to use Facebook. So it's going to, and it's okay for my family to use WhatsApp if that's what they're using. Hopefully, we can have a conversation about what it means to use that. And maybe they'll choose to switch. But uh, I think, yes, we're definitely not here to tell people this is the list of platforms you should use instead of this other list. Because I think it's going to look different for everybody
1: and part of the conversation is to, to to shift away from saying it's all about uh, social media right sure. Because that's that's where this bigger order hits most of us but as you were bringing out earlier the, the many other aspects of the f- often far harsher and more dangerous for the long term that are nothing to do with social media whatsoever mm-hmm. so you've got agriculture all being about data extraction now so farmers can't mend their own tractors now because that will be fiddling with a data extraction mechanism. So they have to get them, the company to download, get them to download a, a solution to their tractor. They, they're not allowed to mend their tractor because that breaches the policy. It's a big problem for farmers these days, in America particularly, mm. but running across the world, or health tech. You know, soon under American insurance rules, you probably will be able to get insurance unless you're wearing something, a chip or something on your body, is going to be tracking your body all the time to try and cut down
0: the health costs so your insurers can make even more money. out. Of it. That does sound like sl- having something on your body sounds like a slave to well, me. Well,
1: it's it certainly goes in that direction. Although we're always really careful about using that word because the, the slave, the brutalism of slavery is unimaginable. I'm just watching the Underground Railroad at the moment, and it's just a terrifying thing to watch uh that TV that serial based on the novel um which is based on the core facts of the underground road and the brutality. so we're never making saying this is exactly the same We're mm. saying there is a crucial point-to-point comparison between the game-changing nature of the land grab going on now and the game-changing nature of the land grab that made that brutality possible mm. the irony is that with capitalism having run for 200 years perfectly successfully with no one disobeying, basically, there haven't been many successful revolutions, and perhaps none in the long run. Capitalism doesn't need that sort of violence to reproduce itself in radically new ways, such as data colonialism. It doesn't need it. It the machine goes on with a few extra additions, like in the, the, you know, the the smart tractor on your farm, Mm -hmm. it's like a normal tractor, it's just radically different. It's based around appropriating every ounce of the creativity of that farmer <laughs> yeah. um, through data and so on. I,
0: I, I, I know we're coming to the end of our hour, um, but if, if you've got time, I, I've oh, made yes, t- sure. two little notes in sure. your book. Sure. Maybe I, you can choose which one of you wants to respond <laughs> to each bit. But they're just just some phrases, I mean, there's lots of phrases that stick out to me. but I just thought for today, I'd ask you about these ones. Um, So yeah, I'll just read it. The greatest threat that data colonialism poses is that in time, it works too well for us to want to live any other kind of existence, so that our complicity in losing hold on the possibility of freedom becomes complete now that terrified me when i read that i just um and and of course complicity is a very brave word because you because you of course you both include yourselves in that i know i mean ag- again it it's it's um you've been very responsible in the way you've written this book uh so that it can be received and and and, and god willing has longevity I'm you know, in writing songs and, and performance and stuff, I'm being a bit more brutalistic <laughs> in, in my approach because that's art, I suppose. but um how how does that feel? Uh, and capture, I've never read that idea before. you know, that we're the ones that have chained ourselves to the master. Well.
1: I think that is that from chapter five i think it might be maybe
0: and the master doesn't even know or no. almost well they i think yeah. they do Sadly, i think
1: they do as you point out in your film there's a guy in the marketing agency who's looking and you know <laughs> target them target them so there is always someone who knows we got oh. that idea you just read out i i came across a sentence in a a book about the philosopher hegel who's famously incomprehensible and he remains pretty incomprehensible mm-hmm. but there's some very smart people have described his ideas and one of them i came across about third a book 30 years ago said a sentence that again took my breath away and i'm sort of translate we translated it as it were in the sentence you just read out this guy said there's no um greater unfreedom Than to get to the point when you no longer remember what freedom was that's the ultimate loss of freedom to have lost the Uh, idea of freedom in other words the the deepest freedom is the idea of imagining you could be free which of course all those who rebelled against slavery had they had this extraordinary belief that somehow they could become free. And indeed, they did become free with all the complications mm-hmm. of the mess of American history. But what if that very idea was translated into always being chained, always being plugged in? Mm. That's what we're uh
0: trying to catch and it's the always bit isn't it the choice to plug into yeah. something because goes it's the same play as playing it. video games in the 80s it's fine is not it but it's it's the choice that should be and always there be novel- us just capture this which was dave eggers in his
1: book the circle which we both read before we got started it's a fantastic book but sadly the film wasn't so good yeah.
0: um i know the circle he there.
1: expresses This core thing, what if our freedom at the very best of us, the greatest moments, the greatest are thanks to a corporation, as in the Truman Show, but even not just one guy, but all of us. And that inspired
2: us a lot, that book, that novel. And I think
1: it's a reality we have to
2: live with. And I think uh, um, we also were able to connect it to colonialism because uh, colonialism colonized not just the body, but the mind. I think you know, in creating what we now call the colonial subject, that wasn't just about the enslavement, as we've discussed a number of times during this conversation. It was also about adopting the attitudes of the colonizer, thinking about the world with the model that the colonizer presented, and thinking about yourself as less than or as occupying that specific space that the colonizer prescribed for you. So uh, colonialism was an intellectual um, uh, project as well in terms of just, you know, plugging into your head. But by the same token, I think what's um, gives me hope is that then it can be resisted also. Uh, through imagination, it can be resisted, we can start to resist it in our minds as well, through this creative process of imagination, of creating culture, of creating movies and music and uh, texts
0: that can help others
2: perhaps begin to unthink uh, uh, this this social order. I, I'd listen
0: to, uh, you, you've both said imagination now, and um, and it, it reminds me of George Monbiot, if you know, the, the journalist, writer, and... Uh, environmentalist George Monbiot, and he's he's repeatedly talked about we've kind of come to the end, and as far as we can get with the kind of narratives that we that we provide our uh, society with, and we need new stories. And both of you, uh, you know, my answer was, how do we get out of this mess? And and if we if we break it down to just simple slogans that will fit on t shirts, it's imagination is the way we get out of the mess. Yeah.
1: Step off the road, as we say in the end of the book. We're on the road, just step to one side. Don't stay on this road. Doesn't mean to say we built a new road yet, but just get off this one we know is not working and stand there together with the rest of us and we'll work something out. We'll work out a different possibility. That's going to be the start.
0: Um, it, um, it's so amazing to talk to you again nick and to talk to you for the first time in this is and um you know i it, 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 you both also seem like the people who wrote the book i was reading you know which is, is kind it's a, it's a, that's kind of magical it's like that thing when you listen you get into a band and and you meet one of them at the gig it's really I, I really love what you've done and i think it's very brave and i think the more we push your work the better uh, for more people to understand and also for more people to be inspired to write their own uh take on what you've 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 captured here i'd like to think of you both as a combined character of toto in the wizard of oz <laughs> uh, because it's toto obviously that that rips the curtain apart away and you see the little man
2: oh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs>
0: yeah he's he's the one that reveals What's uh-huh. really behind the controls? It's not the Great and Powerful Oz. It's yeah. just another. It's just another human, you know. It Toto lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's sort of. I see this really amazing tenacity that you've had to to take on. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the 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 problems of the last well since the Industrial Revolution, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's hundreds of years of that have grown us into this uh states that we're in yeah. and um and i i think it's a really original and uh, uh and refreshing take on how to get out of the mess we're in and uh i you know really wish you luck with the future of the, but you know i support it and i'm going to carry on telling everybody that they should read it anyway thank you yeah of Every course time. good
1: luck with your album I mean, we really like the songs on it and the film and everything it's great to have a meeting of minds and not to feel quite so lonely
0: <laughs> yeah good yeah uh, me
1: too me, absolutely so let's, let's connect more i
2: yeah, sure team.
0: i think so yes. and i'm and, um, trying to bring the, the the collective you're talking about together from wherever those souls might come from i think yeah. Uh, this is it. It's finding the others that feel the same way, and and I still remember the first email of it, which is that like, I think I've accidentally written a musical of your book, <laughs> <laughs> and it does it feels like that, and I felt less lonely as well. So, uh, Ulysses Mejias and Nick Calder, thank you, thank, you, thank you so much for this super connected conversation. Great pleasure, Take thank care. you.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye. Till next one. Bye. Bye-bye.